Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our discussion on data after Brexit, hosted by the Institute for Government and kindly supported by Tech UK. I'm Gavin Freegard, Programme Director for Data and Digital at the IFG, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you to a suspiciously sunny virtual institute this morning. Some housekeeping before we get underway. We are live and on the record, and we're also being recorded so you can watch or listen again later. If you'd like to get involved on Twitter, you can do so using hashtag IFGBrexit, and we'll be live tweeting from at IFG events. Most importantly, you can ask our fantastic panel some questions by using the Q&A tool here on Microsoft Teams. You should be able to see an icon with two speech bubbles and a question mark somewhere. Tell us who you are and where you're from if you'd like, and do start submitting questions from the start, and I'll try to read them in. This morning's event is supported by Tech UK, the trade association which brings together people, companies and organisations to realise the positive outcomes of what digital technology can achieve. They create a network for innovation and collaboration across business, government and stakeholders to provide a better future for people, society, the economy and the planet. So, data after Brexit. We live in the information age. Data is everywhere and increasingly fundamental to modern life, not least this year when many of us have been living more and more of our lives online. The free flow of a lot of that data around the European Union and around the world allows us to communicate, enables businesses to provide services, permits law enforcement agencies to collaborate and much, much more. But as things stand, the UK will lose easy access to data from the EU after Brexit, which could result in huge disruption. Unless the European Commission issues a decision that the UK's personal data regime provides a level of data protection comparable to the EU and grants the UK data adequacy status, it has not yet done so. Even though key European rules, such as the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, are part of UK law, there is no guarantee the UK will get an adequacy decision. And the European Court of Justice has previously ruled that the UK's handling of personal data isn't in line with EU law. So what exactly are the chances of the UK getting a data adequacy decision in the next 29 days? What happens if we don't get one? Either way, what will the UK's approach to data and data protection look like after Brexit? Answering those questions and more will be our fantastic panel this morning. First, we'll hear from Anthony Walker, Deputy Chief Executive at Tech UK, which he helped launch back in 2013. Before that, he was Chief Executive of the Broadband Stakeholder Group, having been closely involved in the development of broadband policy development in the UK for many years. He also led the development of the UK's Open Internet Code of Practice. Before setting up the BSG, Anthony spent six years working in Brussels for the American Chamber of Commerce, following and writing about telecoms issues and as a consultant working on EU social affairs and environmental issues. Then we'll hear from Jenny Tennyson, Vice President and Chief Strategy Advisor at the Open Data Institute, which works with companies and governments to build an open, trustworthy data ecosystem where people can make better decisions using data and manage any harmful impacts. She's been at the ODI since 2012, first as Technical Director and then as CEO. She previously worked as an independent consultant specialising in open data and consumption after gaining a PhD in AI, artificial intelligence, from the University of Nottingham. She served on the World Wide Web Consortium's Technical Architecture Group from 2011 to 15 and sits on various boards, including the UK's Health Tech Advisory Board. And last but not least, we'll hear from J. Scott Marcus, Senior Fellow at Bruegel, the independent European think tank founded in 2005, which aims to improve the quality of economic policy with open and fact-based research, analysis and debate. Scott also works as an independent consultant dealing with policy and regulatory policy regarding electronic communications. 
He previously served as a director for WIK Consult, a German research institute in regulatory economics and network industries, a senior advisor for internet technology for the US Federal Communications Commission, and as chief technology officer of an internet service provider. I'll start by asking our panelists some questions. Please do start submitting your questions from the start via the Q&A tool, and I'll put them to our panel, and we'll wrap up at 10.30. So without further ado, Anthony, I'll come to you first. Um, what does data adequacy mean from a business perspective? Good morning, Gavin. Good morning, everybody. Um, so, um, yeah, data adequacy, um, yeah, hugely important and significant for, uh, for UK businesses. Essentially, it's the mechanism uh, that provides a, a legal basis for the lawful transfer of, of personal data uh, cross-border uh, between the UK and the EU. Um, and given the size and scale of, of trade between uh, the UK and the EU, obviously data is fundamentally kind of underpins that trade. Um, so a really important um, uh, kind of mechanism uh, that underpins our trading relationship um, uh, with, uh, with our European neighbours. Um, and the significance about whether or not we, 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 we get a uh, adequacy agreement, if we don't have an adequacy agreement, um, then there are, are other mechanisms um, that businesses can put in place um, to, to have that kind of le legal basis for that lawful transfer, um, but they're more costly, more cumbersome, um, and, 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 and potentially less enduring. Um, so uh, if we don't have an adequacy decision, um, then that has quite significant implications for um, the extent to which um, data can flow cross-border. I apologise in advance for even asking this, but um, what do you think the chances are? What 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 does business currently think the chances are of there being a data adequacy decision uh, by thirty first of December? Uh, so, I mean, this is a question that we've been obsessed with um, since back in well, the day after the referendum, really. Um, and and the fact is, um, we've just got to wait and see. Uh, I think uh, I think it's entirely possible um, that we could get a, a an adequacy um, uh, agreement. Um, and um, but but I think first of all we have to see what happens with the negotiations around the the, the FTA um, and the you know the, the exit deal. Um, if there is a, an agreement and, and we leave with a deal, then I think that significantly improves the prospects for getting an adequacy agreement. Um, but time will be very short, um, and it seems unlikely that there is enough time um, for a final decision on adequacy to to be agreed. So what might happen? Um, is that there might be a the commission might issue a, a, a sort of draft decision um, that then goes to the the, the European uh, Data Protection Board uh, for its opinion, which is, was likely to take a little bit of time, um, and and that we won't get a final decision until sometime in the new year. Um, in which case, you'd probably like to see some uh, some sort of uh, transitional arrangement agreed by European um, data protection agencies, maybe through uh, some sort of memorandum of understanding. Uh, that enables the uh, sort of status quo to continue until that that um, adequacy decision is in place. Uh, but that's all speculation. Uh, we don't really know, um, but we are now not far away, I think, from knowing one way or the other. Given all of that uncertainty, what are the sort of implications for your members, your network in, in trying to prepare for whatever happens in a few weeks time? Well, I think what we've seen is is that if you look at Tech UK's members, uh, uh, large companies have been preparing for a situation where there is uh, where there isn't an adequacy decision for some time, um, um, and and they have put in place uh, what are called standard contractual clauses, uh, which are this alternative mechanism 
um, to provide that kind of uh, legal basis um, and, and that they've done that. Um, but when you look at smaller companies, um, they are much less likely to have done that. They're, they're, they're playing kind of still playing kind of wait and see. Um, uh, that's for those who understand that they need to, to do something. Uh, but then what really concerns us, if you look more widely across the economy, uh, you'll see huge swathes of companies and organisations across the com uh, economy that are simply not aware that they may have to take um, additional action. Um, and that that's the bit that, that is, is, a, is a real concern. And I think, um, but I think one thing I'd say is whilst uh, if you look at, you know, we're looking at preparedness in, in, in the UK, I think the European Commission is very concerned that when they look across businesses across Europe, the level of pre preparedness there is, is significantly lower. And there are probably more large businesses that don't yet have those um, uh, SECs in place and so on. Um, so the Commission is, is also worried about that. Thank you. I suppose that that questions of preparedness also, um, Jenny, sort of come into data protection. I know the ODI um, sort of has done a lot of work about ensuring that the use of data isn't harmful. Clearly, data protection is really important uh, to all of that. And um, what's your sort of perspective on what happens to data protection in the UK next? Um, so I think it's really interesting looking at, at the national data strategy and, and the kind of hints and, and uh, directions of travel that you, that you can kind of glean between the lines uh, within the national data strategy. Um, th there's obviously some concern about whether uh, on the part of government around around whether GDPR has has placed too much burden on in particular small businesses and that uh, and a uh, uh, at least one narrative is, is saying that um, we need to relax some of GDPR in order to enable, in order to make things easier for those small businesses. Um, uh, and kind of indications that they might even consider that, I think, is one of the reasons why we're having having these issues around around the getting an adequacy um, decision. Because of course, the direction that the UK takes its data protection uh, laws is is a, a big indication about what what that might look like in the future. And, and EU doesn't want to grant data adequacy only for us to change our regime uh, a little down the line and, and, and it need to withdraw it again. Um, uh, we also see, you know, hints about um, potentially needing to relax some of those uh, or, or or have some flexibility in order to enter into trade deals with other countries, right, and and, and be able to to have free flow of data with those other countries, which again is a kind of warning sign for for um, uh, around data adequacy. From a from a kind of civil society perspective, I think that the 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 feeling is. Um, you know, any relax, any relaxation around uh, around GDPR is uh, is a problem because it would take take away some of the rights that we have around data protection, and and that we want to see those those uh, you know still being in place and still strong for from a, a personal data protection perspective. That GDPR is really found foundational that and something that that we can um, build on top of. Right, as we develop our data protection regime, but it shouldn't be something that is undermined. Um, and actually, some of the kind of any concerns that the uh, European Commission might have about our data adequacy, about granting data adequacy to the UK, really highlights 
actually some things that we should be concerned about about the use of data within the in the UK anyway you know the the kinds of powers that are in the investigatory powers act the carves out that carve out in in um, our data protection acts that are around immigration uh, use of data around immigration for example are things that civil society and privacy activists are particularly concerned about anyway um, so so we're in a we're in a situation where um, like the direction that the UK government takes data protection law is going to be uh, significant and, and the, the, um, uh, what the European Commission sees in terms of hints is going to be uh, it is going to be affecting the way in which it makes its decisions, I think. Um, I think, and maybe we can come on to this later, that, that there are some very strong places where we could build on top of GDPR in ways that put us in a very good position within the UK to be really building a, an open and trustworthy and active and innovative and socially just um, data ecosystem. But uh, so things around um, uh, changes around data portability, for example, things around building on top of these individual rights that GDPR provides some some pieces around group rights and looking at population level effects. Um, but but, uh, you know, it really is all to play for, I think, about what the what that future looks like. And uh, if you haven't already done so, put in your response to the national data strategy, because that will help to to shove the, the government in the right direction. Excellent shout out there, and I would uh, fully endorse that. Um, we've mentioned the national data strategy. I think in the in the government's response to which di digital identity consultation is what it talked about sweeping away various regulatory barriers when it came to data protection. It doesn't seem to be entirely clear from anything government said exactly what they mean by that. No, I think that, that, that a lot of this is very much still up in the air, and it's those kinds of it's those kinds of hints that I think cause uncertainty not only for UK. Uh, UK businesses, UK civil society and, and the European Commission, um, we really need to have a, 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 a lot more kind of clarity about what it is that the government intends to do in order to provide that certainty and confidence that that um, will help us go forward. And of course, I you know, have to recognise that that's also difficult for government, right? You know, it's in the middle of these trade negotiations. It doesn't want to show its hand too much. It's also needing to understand what its resources are. Um, and some of these decisions around around digital identity and around, you know, um, the, the kind of uh, how you balance data protection while protecting citizens in particular against security threats, they're difficult kinds of things to navigate. It's not as if there's an obvious answer around these things. So it's not surprising that it takes some, of, some time to work those things out. Um, but I hope that we can get some acceleration of that in particular now that the spending review has, has, has come through, that the national data strategy is out. Um, uh, and I think that, you know, we'll be in a better position in 2021. Excellent, thank you. Remains to be seen what the sort of 2021 version of everybody's inbox is being full of GDPR newsletter related emails uh, is going to be, which goes to your point of uncertainty. Um, Scott, a very good morning um, to you. Um, where do you think the EU is on all of this at the moment in terms of data adequacy and, and making a decision? First, I'd like to say, I, I think the questions that are posed are, will there be an adequacy decision I think at least as important is, will that decision be sustainable and for how long, yeah. right? That to me is actually the larger issue. Now, uh, I agree with Anthony's comment that if the negotiations go well on the future relationship, that the likelihood of getting a, a deal on this or at least an interim arrangement becomes very high. 
basically, the European institutions don't want to interrupt trade. I think this is absolutely clear. They don't want to needlessly interrupt trade with the UK. Um, and so if there's any prospect for, uh, for providing adequacy, even on a temporary basis, I think they will do it. Uh, now, there are a couple of ways that things could still go sour, even relative to the negotiations. Uh, I would expect the future relationship uh, arrangements are going to have some provisions such that if the withdrawal agreement isn't honored in full, parts of the future relationship will go away and the adequacy decision might very well go down with it. Uh, again, I have no inside information here, but I would be very surprised if there isn't something like that there. Um, so those aspects I think are, are, are fairly clear. Um, the, um, as far as maintaining uh, the agreement, the biggest issue that I see by far comes from the Schrems II decision. And this decision, I think, is very widely misunderstood. It was not about commercial privacy at all. It was entirely about excessive US government surveillance for purposes of national security. So the fact that the UK has, I would expect, very good conformance with GDPR says really nothing about the adequacy decision. Uh, what the Schrems II says is that companies have to worry about this, national data protection authorities have to worry about this, and the commission has to worry about this when they grant adequacy decisions. So what this means, unfortunately, is that, uh, and here I have to take polite issue with, with Anthony, uh, implementing SCCs uh, is fine as far as commercial transfers. It doesn't actually solve the problem for the companies. The companies still have to consider something that they're ill-equipped to consider, which is, are the security practices in the UK compliant with, uh, with whatever European norms are? I mean, there's perhaps a little hypocrisy here, but still, the companies are ill-equipped to do this, and the European companies that send data to their UK counterparts have to consider this, which they're also ill-equipped to do. Um, so, so something more has to happen. The SCCs in and of themselves are not sufficient. Um, what, what, what the Schrems did actually was to strike down the adequacy decision regarding Privacy Shield, not the Privacy Shield itself. Um, and so I think unless some things happen in addition, uh, there are still problems. Also, what it means is, even though I think the Commission will really want to grant an adequacy decision, at least on a temporary basis, even in the absence of an agreement on future relationship, I don't think that they will want to pull the plug on January 1st. But if they do, they will be cobbling something together that they know is very likely to fall on judicial appeal. If the case were to go to the CGAU today, on the facts as they exist today, the you, the UK and the Commission, assuming the Commission has granted some kind of interim uh, adequacy decision, they would lose, right? I mean, because it would be substantially the same facts as with the US, uh, the same issues, you can expect the same decision. So, so this is really the risk. And uh, from, from that perspective, what I really hope can happen is uh, now that we have a new administration in Washington, that we see a constructive dialogue between uh, EU and US and also uh, UK, EU and US to try to come up with a judicially sustainable framework. That would be the good case. In that case, adequacy decisions could be maintained all around. It would mean that US intelligence services and UK intelligence services 
would need to implement stronger protections on who they surveil and how and why and better means of redress. Now, the, the redress was a big deal in the court cases. I actually think it's in some ways a little overblown, but the court can't ignore it. Um, because in practice, it's very hard to get redress in a national security surveillance case. You don't know that you've been surveilled. How would you know? And trying to get it to court also usually involves state secrets. Um, I've been actually a witness against the NSA in a case that's been going since 2005. It's not yet res judicata. Um, so for anybody to get redress is tough. Um, but the GEPR says that it has to be there. The CGAU Schrems II decision says it has to be there. I don't think they can back away from that. So there are a lot of uncertainties, but there's also some rather large risks because basically, uh, if the, if there's um, <clears throat> if there's no adequacy decision, at least on a temporary basis, it's not just SCCs. It means substantial changes to business practice. It may mean encryption. It may mean moving affiliates offshore into the EU. It may mean very complicated and expensive things. Thank you, Anthony. Looks like yeah, yeah. yeah so so um so I mean I agree with with um everything that, you know that that. That's got said there. I, th I think the um, but I think that there's a there's a there's a big question here, which is whose problem is this? Um, and um, because um, because I think that the European Union is facing a really uh, significant challenge. That if it can't find a way through um, to to find uh, legal mechanisms that are sustainable and endurable for international data transfers, then what's the alternative? Um, and the, the alternative is to go back down the route of more kind of data localization. Um, and yet, you know, from the, the you know, the EU's kind of, um, you know, trading ethos, you know, for years, the EU has been pre arguing precisely against um, 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 data localization. And so if, if the EU, EU wants to be part, if it, if it wants to kind of export its regulatory approach towards data protection, um, and it also wants to um, support the, um, you know, global uh, digital trade, which in, in which it, you know, it could be a significant participant and 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 and, and winner in many ways. Um, then it needs to find a way forward. And I think, and, and this is where, um, you know, GDPR I think presents some real problems for the EU, because it appears to set some standards in terms of, um, uh, uh, particularly in relation to um uh kind of the impact of, of national security legislation um that its own member states don't have to meet so you have to ask yourself the question why is it that the uk can be fully adequate you know fully you know a, you know a safe place to transfer um uh, data on, on on the 31st of december but it's not on the 1st of january what has substantially changed well um, and, and what's changed is, is that suddenly um, the impact of UK uh, security legislation becomes relevant when it wasn't relevant before. And, the, the, um, and, and I think um, so I think that's a kind of fundamental question. I, I think uh, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, um, you know, the US election result, I think, is, is going to be quite crucial here because I think the EU will be looking for a much more positive and constructive dialogue uh, with the Biden administration about how um, they can um, uh, fix the challenges of, of, of privacy shield to make sure that it is adequate as, as, as a mechanism. And then the second thing I say is in terms of the UK EU relationship is um, is you know from from day one the UK has been fully cognizant of the implications uh, of of its own um, security legislation uh, at the Investigative Powers Act um, and and the need to be able to talk through those issues with the EU. So. Um, it, it, it looked hard at, at the work that had been done 
um, in the US um, under Obama years in terms of how they negotiated. Um, and they did a lot of work in making sure that uh, the UK security services were engaged in the debate about how to secure adequacy. So, so in terms of some of that detail, you know, there are ways in which you can uh, you can address those issues, and I'm, I'm sure that the UK and the EU has been very focused on that. So, so I'm, I'm not sure that investigative powers bill necessarily has to be the big blocker. I think the bigger issue is is does GDPR really enable a global framework for international data flows? Thanks, Anthony. Um, does anybody want to come in on any of those points? Otherwise, we've got a really good question that's just come in. No, well, in fact, I, I agree with large parts of that. I think that the GDPR um, is a somewhat rigid framework. The fact that privacy is viewed as a human right makes it hard to back off. Um, but I don't think the CGAU is likely to back off because they have to interpret the laws as, as they're written, and much the same holds for the Data Protection Agency's authority. So, um, you know, I think there's a bit of an impasse here. They, there, there's not a uh, there's not a mechanism there to take economic hardship or economic costs into account in making legal decisions. Um, so the EU here is in a bit of a box. Again, I, I expect that this will get debated with goodwill, assuming that there's goodwill in the way that the overall negotiations go. I, I genuinely do not think that the EU, that the European institutions want to see trade break down. I think quite the opposite. So there'll be, I believe, a, a constructive search for solutions um, but the maneuvering room is less than I would ideally like. Excellent. Um, so we've got a question from John Charlesworth, who says that actually some of these points were being answered as he was typing. Uh, but nonetheless, I think there's, there's an interesting set of points. Um, he's wondering sort of where, you know, where the UK, Europe and the US government um, sits in prioritising what needs to be done um, before 2021. And um, what restrictions in particular need to be avoided is his question. I'm not quite sure what the restrictions might refer right, might refer to, but um, um, I'll, I'll take I'll take at least yeah. a shot at this. Um, again, the issue wasn't about commercial privacy. The issue is entirely about government surveillance. Um, the um, you know the, the general principle in Western democracies has been that surveillance for criminal per, criminal investigation is permitted when there's reasonable cause that you can't just surveil everybody. There would be too much tendency, for example, to surveil political opponents and so on. So, um, so that's the broad principle. And somewhat the same principle applies relative to foreign intelligence. Um, the US, interestingly, has no protection at all for people other than US persons, those who are either citizens or residents. Um, but uh, the, the complaint from the court the, the, I think the more important one, again, I, I'm a little less worried about redress, and I think that's also easier to fix. Yeah. Um, the, the one about the surveillance was that it was a, a vacuum cleaner surveillance um, and uh, that it wasn't subject to sufficient internal controls. So I would think there, um, you know, again, the, the privacy shield was an institutionally weak mechanism. There really wasn't a treaty about this. It was a bunch of memoranda from U.S. intelligence agencies to the U.S. Department of Commerce. There's nothing enforceable. Um, you know, I, I, I think with a with an enforceable, judicially sustainable thing that basically says people can be surveilled for good cause and that somehow there are some internal you know, mechanisms subject to tight controls so that the information doesn't get out appropriately. The people who are being surveilled can't know they're being surveilled. But I, I think one could could do this, and most intelligence laws 
try to do this, effectively the court is saying it wasn't good enough. Thank you. Um, we've got another question that's come in from Bryn. I might go to Jenny first um, with this one. Uh, how do you see Brexit impacting the changes in data management across central and local government and other public sector organisations? Um, yeah, it's a good question. So uh, we have to see that Brexit isn't isn't uh, isn't only going to have an impact on on our data protection kind of uh, adequacy and all of those kinds of things. It also has uh, has a, a big impact on how we manage data that we rely on here in the UK. Um, whether that's about uh, whether that's data that's used by security services and the kind of access to to, to data that they use and uh, and the kind of exchanges that we've had with. European security services as well, or actually just things like, you know, lists of medicines that are approved or um, uh, or other kinds of registers that we have where we have been in a collaborative relationship with the European uh, Union about the maintenance of that data and relied on it in our own in our own capacity. Now we have our own lists because we have our own legislation and that means that we have to take responsibility for maintaining those data sets um, for making sure that they're up to date with our legislation um, and we can't spread the cost of doing that around anymore so um, that means that central government uh, has no doubt been working on creating those those copies those, uh, of, of databases where it's where it's able to do so that it now needs to maintain that it now needs to take the cost of maintaining on itself um, and and I, I I have this kind of fear that some of those won't have been uh, adequately addressed or or we, you know we won't know about some of that data infrastructure that we're actually really reliant on right now um, uh, or that we won't have the capacity inside like inside central government and arm's length bodies that, that are taking on those kinds of responsibilities um, to maintain that data to a high standard over the long term uh, to make sure that it's accessible to others. So so yes, the, the, the Brexit decision has also meant like changes to the way in which we manage those vital data infrastructure forms of data sets that, that we have now to take sole responsibility for within the UK. Thanks, Jenny. <clears throat> I mean, how, how do you think UK organisations can try to build that capability? How can they try to prepare for what they'll need to do next? Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, for, for any area where you're, where you're looking at uh, the, the role of data, you, you have to be you, you have to properly do the analysis that looks at what data you rely on and what data is, is really required for that. And um, uh, I think you know there are some there are some positive things that that could be done differently in the way in which we manage data within the UK now that we're, we're uh, the, that we have that kind of flexibility and we have our own ownership over it. In particular, you know, um, uh, we have historically, uh, and uh, th this goes in the UK, it goes across many countries actually, um, had a tendency for government to take sole responsibility for maintaining data sets and take on the sole cost for doing that. Um, I think that there are strong opportunities for UK government to take different kinds of approaches that involve more collaboration with uh, the private sector, uh, civil society, academia in maintaining data that is, is necessary and that more collaborative 
maintenance of data can mean higher quality, it can mean um, data that is up to date, it can mean spreading the costs of that maintenance. So there are some there are some opportunities there that that I think you know rather than simply replicating the models of the past, I think that that government um, government departments, public bodies that are maintaining data should be looking at some of these new methods of, of maintaining data to to high quality and also really be setting the the bar a little higher so you know many many um uh, maintenance uh, much maintenance of data is then uh, made available actually not as very good machine readable data it's made available in web pages or, or through pdfs or or whatever and um, and really we could build a data infrastructure that's a lot more fit for purpose in the in where we are now in the 2020s Excellent. Thanks, Jenny. Um, we've got lots of questions coming in, in from the audience. Um, just before I go to some of those, um, Jenny was talking about sort of collaboration, particularly between the UK and the EU. Obviously, the, the UK not being in the room um, for a lot of, sort of data and digital rights related decisions will have an impact um, on the EU as well. Um, Scott, Anthony, I, I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, so I go first. Um, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I mean, when we talk to our counterparts around um, around Europe, sort of other um, technology trade bodies around Europe, um, they're certainly concerned about not having the UK in the room. Uh, you know, they felt that the UK has been a very uh, constructive voice uh, around around uh, the digital economy um, and has traditionally been kind of, um, you know, quite quite pragmatic um, and, 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 has, and has helped to lead uh, a lot of the thinking about how, how you know dig about digitization in, in the EU. So, so I, I think that 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 voice will be will be missed. I think what we're seeing is um, other member states um, who maybe used to sit around, uh, you know, used to used to um, wait for the UK to come forward first, uh, are realizing that that they're, that they're possibly going to have to uh, uh, be a bit more forward in terms of raising their, their thoughts and concerns and organizing a bit better and particularly some of the uh, the smaller member states um but um uh, but i think but also that you know the world's moved on since 2015 and, and 2016 um and and i think the you know you know across the world there's a different um uh, view and an approach to how you regulate the digital economy how you regulate big platforms and so on um, and 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 so the agenda has kind of moved on since since um, you know since that period when the UK was was really leading. Uh, so I think um, and, and and what we're seeing now I think is uh, a recognition at European level that um, of the fundamental importance of digital and, and, and uh, to the, the EU economy, um, uh, a, a willingness and a desire to uh, to to regulate some of the big big uh, global platforms. Um, so we're going to see the Digital Services Act coming through the next couple of days, um, uh, being more activist in, in, in that respect. Um, uh, but but actually, you're seeing similar trends in the UK as well in terms of the way policymakers are thinking. So, um, uh, so uh, but I, I, I think I think the EU will continue to look very closely at what the UK is doing and thinking and, um, and will continue to, you know, to engage to try and understand that even if the UK isn't in the room. Yeah, I, I actually very much support those views. Uh, the UK has historically been a very progressive, pro-market, pro-competition force in all of these discussions. Uh, it'll be missed. Uh, many of the countries closest to US views, I think especially of Scandinavian countries, Netherlands, uh, they really already missed the fact that the UK hasn't been so much in the discussions over the past year. Um, I personally will miss the UK. Um, 
I do a lot of work with electronic communications. The framework in place in all of Europe is largely a, a UK design from 2002. Um, so the UK has played a tremendous positive role, and I, I think it's uh, it's very regrettable that uh, that the UK won't be so visible. I also would very much agree with Anthony's point, though, that uh, that this issue of digital platforms, many of which are US based, is very much on the radar. Uh, in the UK, in the EU 27, and also in the USA. Yeah. And that uh, new regulatory approaches, new policy approaches, new approaches to competition law are, are really likely in all three. Hopefully they'll be reasonably well aligned between the three. Um, at the moment, I would say that the signs are good, that things are moving in similar directions, but the devil could very well be in the detail. We'll know a lot more. At this point, it's looking like December 15th that we'll actually see the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act. Thanks, Scott. Um, we've got a question from Len Hawkes, who observes um, it's often been mooted that the UK will row back um, from lots of human rights legislation. In fact, I think the 2019 Conservative Manifesto talks about updating uh, the Human Rights Act. Um, what would the implications be for adequacy if there were to be some uh, retrenchment on uh, human rights legislation? Don't know who wants to go with that one first. When when the European Commission kind of you know makes a, an adequacy sort of judgment, it it has to look in the round, right? It has to look at the whole the whole um, framework of, of protections that are in place. Um, so uh, so things like changes to human you know fundamental human rights legislation uh, is is certainly relevant. Um, and I think and and again I, you know I think this is one of the reasons why I I think that you know the European Commission really would uh, like to see an adequacy agreement because. Because you know, because it, it means that it that the UK stays in the EU's orbit a bit, um, and and um, and it means that the the UK remains uh, you know broadly aligned uh, with the EU EU policy. Uh, it's not a it's not it's not part of the EU, um, but it's kind of on a on a on a piece of elastic, you know, and 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 adequacy is you know in many ways is it's a piece of elastic, and you you can stretch it and stretch it, but at some stage it breaks, and and that breaking point is a constraint on what the UK may do. Uh, in terms of diverging away from the, the European model, so um, and and you know and and so so geopolitically, that's that's incredibly valuable um, to the European Union. So so there are very very good reasons why the European Union would want to have an adequacy agreement with with, with the UK, um, and why it's good for kind of global alignments around kind of core norms around around things like human rights. I'd agree with that. Um, the EU has actually been more pragmatic than I think a lot of people realize on having arrangements that are not full member state arrangements. If you look at the EEA, <coughs> EEA arrangements with uh, Norway, Liechtenstein and Iceland, if you look at the various treaties between the EU and Switzerland, you see that they're part of the orbit, even though they're not uh, member states. Um, the arrangements with the UK uh, would be more arm's length than those, but I think somehow trying to keep, uh, keep some degree of alignment as much as possible makes geopolitical sense for everybody. And I think the European institutions will be trying to, to achieve that as much as possible. Uh, in, in this area of human rights, it's a bit of a challenge because, again, the same Schrems II decision that said that you've got to look at these surveillance issues, really human, parts of, human rights is part of that. And effectively, the court took the European Commission to task twice now for having failed to do that in the adequacy decisions with the USA. So um, one, one has to hope that the departure is something that they can somehow find a way around. I mean, obviously, the UK has overall very good respect for human rights, so I would hope that there's nothing here that won't be that will be insurmountable. 
Thanks. Um, we've got a question from Anonymous now. Good morning to you, Anonymous. Um, how can the UK take advantage of its exit from the EU on a data perspective? Um, they specifically mentioned you know, could the UK do data dumping now it's legally outside the GDPR framework. But I think more broadly, what what are the advantages um, that the UK could could find? Uh, I mean, I, I think um, you know, you know, the, the UK is now on a journey of of building its new global trading relationship um, and um, and and so it's it, you know working towards uh, you know we've already got a, a number of kind of almost kind of rollover um, uh, free trade agreements but but it's looking to build out um, you know uh, uh, this this kind of it's putting together that jigsaw puzzle as it were of, 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 of trade agreements um, and I think the um, uh, you know the the, the the opportunity in a way for the UK is to be that bridge between the EU and, and, and GDPR and the rest of the world. Um, uh, but I think it's, um, but I think when, when we're thinking about that and thinking about this evolution of, you know, what does really good kind of um, kind of governance look like for a digital economy? Um, that, that, that actually it goes beyond privacy. Um, and, and, and because of GDPR, we've been very, very focused on the privacy issues. but. But you know, you know, equally here there are issues around um, you know equality um, and 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 having kind of equal rights um, and and um, you know the right uh, if you know if if people are being profiled, then how do we make sure that that profiling doesn't lead to discrimination? So so I think I think the opportunities for the UK are, are in this kind of this broader framework for for governance for digital economy, thinking about the ethics, how the ethics needs to impact the developments of new law and legislation. Um, and and because I think if it can do that, I think it can still have a have a, a global leadership role, and I think it can have an influence on on the way and the, some of the direction the EU takes as well. So so I think it's that kind of uh, you know being forward thinking about the, the the big policy and regulatory challenges related to um, you know a global digital economy, um, how you have and and how you balance these trade offs of of, of free, free flow of data and digital trade. Uh, but at the same time, you know, really, really good governance. And, and I think that's where the opportunities are. Jenny, um, over to you. Uh, yeah, I, I really agree with with Anthony that there are some some strong opportunities in particular that uh, around framing uh, the way that we think about data protection, that not in the kind of narrow way that we that we have been and that GDPR does around individual data, <clears throat> individual data rights, but much more broadly that this larger kind of good data governance for the good of everyone kind of uh, kind of perspective. You know, what um, what we've been seeing recently in particular in, in data governance kind of conversations at the, at the international level is a real recognition that new types of data, new types of data processing, big data, AI, machine learning, all of these things lead to population level effects, not just individual yes. level effects. And so the population level effects that we have, you know, th things like biases that, that come out that, that, that uh, where our automated processes are affecting particular subgroups, often the most disadvantaged subgroups in society, um, need to be a, a, a 
uh, need to be addressed through a broader kind of data governance regime than the one that we have that is focused on individuals. Um, and so, the, I, you know, countries around the world are trying to tackle how to how to manage that, those kind of new data governance challenges. You you look over in India and the kinds of data governance frameworks that they're starting to look at and experiment with around both personal and non-personal data, how they're using intermediaries and, and uh, things like data trusts and other kinds of data institutions in, in, in those contexts. We have a real opportunity, I think, in the UK to take our thinking beyond GDPR, to take yeah. our thinking beyond that individual rights and, and towards this broader data governance perspective, where we see data as something that has to be managed at that population uh, at that kind of population level um, and where we, we have more democratic uh, governance of data, um, more kind of participative governance of data, more bottom up governance of data than the kinds of models that we uh, that we already have. And the UK has a real opportunity to set, put in place the right kinds of incentives, the right kinds of policy frameworks, um, the right kinds of laws to enable that to happen. And so um, I think that, you know, Brexit gives us some opportunities to, to uh, really take a lead in some of these areas that, you know, build on our traditional leadership around data um, and really take a lead in, in experimenting with some of these these areas, experimenting carefully with some of these areas that are, that are thinking more on this population level. If, if I could uh, add to that, I, I very much agree with these points. Uh, the maintenance of the adequacy decision doesn't specifically require that the UK continue to adhere 100% to GDPR. Yes. What it requires is that you may continue to maintain protection of personal privacy at least as good on balance as GDPR. And um, so that allows some latitude. I think there, you know, there may at times be need for some dialogue between EU and UK to make sure that you sort of don't overstep somehow. But, um, but there's actually substantial latitude, I think, substantial room uh, for, for the UK to innovate as you've innovated in so many other policy areas. Uh, I'd also like to very much endorse what Jenny was just saying about uh, the fact that this is not just about personal data, uh, there's actually been several legislative measures within the EU in the past legislative term that dealt with non-personal data and also with public sector information, trying to increase the access of that, trying to make APIs so as to provide real-time access to transport data, to energy data, to other sources of data in the interest of facilitating new businesses. Uh, the EU just announced a few days ago a Data Governance Act that uh, tries to take this a little further. I'm frankly not convinced it does very much. But, um, but that's another discussion. But the, the intent is there to continue to broaden the access to all kinds of data, not just to limit it for personal data. Thank you. And um, that point about maintenance of uh, some sort of adequacy decision is a really important one as well. As one of my colleagues put it to me, adequacy decision is just for Christmas, not for life. Um, looking through, we've, we've got a number of questions that have come in about the sort of practicalities of if you're running a business in the UK, but your data is stored on EU servers. What does that mean? And we'll come to those in a second. But before we do, just following on quite nicely from a lot of what Jenny was saying about the sort of UK's place in the world and various other international examples, we have a quote, deliberately provocative, uh, unquote, question from Marcus. Grisette uh, from Privatar. He says there appears to be a global trend towards policy measures to support data sovereignty, for example, local processing or storage rules, transfer restrictions and so on. Is a world without the free flows envisaged by adequacy decisions simply the new normal? don't know who'd like to take that rather big question first. I, um, I, I think there's a, there's a risk that it could be. Um, and, I, and I think if 
Um, and I think there's a, there's a risk that we, we, we go to this much greater kind of fragmentation of, of the global digital economy um, uh, where, where things like data localization and be, you know, become uh, the new normal and, and, and become mandated. Um, you know, personally, I don't think that's a good thing. Um, I, I don't think, um, I, I think far better that we can move towards uh, global norms, global standards, um, and um, and, a, and a more integrated global digital economy. Um, I think the um, and I think uh, the sometimes the motivation for some of that kind of localization, you know, is driven less by the by the desire to see safeguards in place and more either to uh, institute greater controls or or, or to protect and, and and to institute protectionism and. I, I, and I, I don't think that's a, you know, I, I don't think um, uh, those kind of economic policy um, uh, goals are best achieved through this kind of, you know, this kind of legislation. I think I think there are questions about how, you know, how how do countries, you know, compete in a global digital economy? How do they strengthen their own digital economy? But I think the protectionist route is is unlikely to be, uh, you know, an, an effective route. Um, so I, I do think we're at this kind of moment um, when, when you know, scenarios could could go either way. Um, and I think um, in in some ways it's interesting that you know you've got the, the 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 UK coming out of the European Union just at this moment, where you know if if of any economy around the world, you know, the UK has has got a very strong interest in 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 to, to try trying to drive that kind of global digital economy. Um, and so, you know, for example, when we go for, you know, uh, engagement we've had with the WTO, a lot of interest in, in OK, what role can the UK uh, play uh, in driving, you know, um, global digital trade uh, within the multilateral organisations and so on. Um, so, so I think it, it, it is a, it is an important moment when it could go either way, I think. Jenny. Um, so, when um, I see conversations about sovereignty, then, then uh, um, the, the kinds of things that it summons up for me is, a, is about control and ability to um, have a, a ability to get the benefits from data that is being generated by a particular individual, whether it, if it's individual sovereignty or a group or a nation. Um, and I think that the, the drive towards data sovereignty, is, um, particularly at a, at a national um, basis, is a drive towards um, nations recognising that the data that in particular that is about their citizens, but also about their land and their natural resources, is being taken out of the country in order to do things with it that then uh, and then have things done to the country. In other words, that the, the, the country no longer has the, um, the the sovereignty over being able to make being able to make informed decisions off the back of the data that it that, that arises from that nation. And I see this in particular from in the kind of lower and middle income countries. Um, although you can also see it in in uh, you know, we in the UK will face some of these challenges, in particular around our, some of our more valuable data assets, such as that data from from the National Health Service, right? Where we want we want to be able to um, uh, not only honour the rights of excuse my cat, uh, not only honour the rights of the the citizens within the UK, but also 
thinking of that, that national health service data as a national asset, be able to take advantage of it and get the value from it ourselves. We don't want, you know, um, lots of, say, US companies building lots of lovely AI off the back of our data and then making lots of money in the US. That's the kind of model that we need to, need to avoid. Um, and so I think that we, we need to, now data is amazingly special in that it's non-rival. It means that, that we can take advantage of data ourselves at the same time as other people can take advantage of that data and so I think that we need to recognize data sovereignty um, and the ability to take advantage and get benefits from data as being something that that can happen even while data flows over those borders and in fact some of those borders uh, enable that value to be realized within nations so I think we need a bit more of a um, uh, it, it, it's more of a conversation in some ways about power than it is about markets um, in some of these places. Um, the other thing that I, that I would just highlight is that, uh, you know, for, for free flow of data to happen well between any set of countries, they need to be aligned on their kinds of policies, but as we've been discussing around data protection, um, but also around the innovation and use of data for, for kind of economic benefit. And um, really, I, I think we, we have to gang together with other countries that are, have the same kinds of attitudes as us and, and take advantage of those kinds of that, that alignment in order to get to um, in order to get to a better place, obviously within the within the European Union, there's a nice gang that 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 thinks more or less the same thing, or or can or can at least align around those things. What's what are the gangs that we get to be part of, and what are the what are those kind of flexible uh, arrangements that that we can take part in, and and they don't have to be geographically. Um, focused, right? Uh, because the digital world is is not the physical world. They can be with countries that that are distant from us physically, but are close to us in how they think about innovation and protection around data. Very much agreed. Um, I, I would say if you look at the uh, European positions on this, um, again, we had a Data Governance Act announced just a week ago, the positions that uh, Commissioner Breton and uh, Executive Vice President Vestager took is very clear that they're trying not to introduce new localization requirements. Um, but the concern is that uh, that's the intent. GDPR and SHRIMS 2 may have that effect, even if it's not intended as such. Excellent, thank you. So I mentioned there was a sort of suite of questions coming in um, on a very similar topic, which is the sort of practical implications of being based in the UK, but your data being elsewhere. I'll just sum up a couple, a couple of those quickly. Um, Anonymous asks, what would be the effect on companies that store their data on EU databases or use cloud services based in the EU? Um, how would it impact on data transfers within a company that spans the EU and the UK? So, you know, an EU-based company with the UK subsidiary or vice versa. I think Naomi puts it really nicely, actually. She sort of says, in talking about this issue, ICO guidance, that's the Information Commissioner's Office, um, seems very focused on where individuals are located, but actually, she says, the impact is very much where you store data. Um, so just general reflections on all those things, and particularly Naomi's question, should our data leadership bodies be raising awareness and understanding of this uh, in different ways? Don't know who'd like to come in first on all of that. Um, yes, I, I think is, uh, is the answer to that. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think a lot of organisations have been trying to raise awareness of these issues. Uh, a lot of work happened <clears throat> kind of this time last year when when there was. Uh, the risk of kind of no deal, and and so there were, um, you know, there was a lot of communication going out to businesses, um, uh, making the point that they needed to look at these issues, needed to understand 
uh, what data was being transferred. They need to understand where data was being stored um, and they needed to look at the mechanisms that they might need to have in place in, in, in a situation where there wasn't an adequacy agreement and that still holds. I mean, I think all of the um, the, the kind of um, uh, sort of scenarios that you that you mentioned or the, the situations that you mentioned all require action um, on, on the part of the company to understand um, but I, I mean, I mean, GDPR requires you to know these things anyway, right? Um, and um, uh, so, uh, and in many instances, um, organisations either themselves will need to make sure that they have uh, the the right contractual clauses uh, in in place, or that their service providers who are managing the data for them, you know, have have, have, the, have that uh, in place. Um, you know, I think um, that there is this broader question around. Um, uh, so uh, um, the, the European Commission has updated these standard contractual clauses following Schrems 2 um, and says here are some clauses we think they work. Um, the European Data Protection Board uh, is a little bit more sceptical and it sort of says that um, uh, that that, um, that that individual companies there that then and organisations need to understand some of the security national security arrangements into those markets not an easy thing to do uh, for anybody um, and so uh, there is ambiguity there um, and I think that there is ambiguity that everybody kind of recognizes that we're going to have to live with um, you know the, the EPD uh, uh, you know basically uh, you know said that they they weren't going to try and reinterpret what what the the, the European Court of Justice has, has said um, and they just said that you know this is this is this is now a bit of a gray area as, as a result of the Trumps too um, um, so, so, so there's ambiguity there, but, but for now, um, you know, the advice I think is very much uh, put those standard construction clauses in, in place um, and, and you, because you certainly will need them in, in the event that there isn't an adequacy decision. Excellent. Does anybody else want to uh, come in on that? Well, I, I have to say um, for myself, I'm a, I'm a very experienced engineer as well as an economist. I know I talked to many of the digital platforms. Uh, my head starts swim, spinning trying to figure out exactly what the implications are of all of this. I really hope to heck that we get an adequacy decision because otherwise it becomes very complex for everyone. Excellent. Um, thanks. I um, I'm going to apologise to everybody whose questions I've not been able to get to uh, today. Some fantastic questions that we've not been able to answer. Um, but I'm going to ask one final question. So if you just answer in a couple of sentences, because that would be really easy. Um, Lewis asks, if there is no adequacy decision, how much will actually change on the 1st of January in practical rather than legal terms? Nice easy one to finish. <laughs> um, I think there will be a lot of muddling through um, on behalf of uh, everybody in terms of uh, uh, data protection authorities, businesses, um, but you can't muddle through forever um, and at some stage it has to have a real impact. So, uh, so um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, you know, by far, by far the best outcome is an adequacy decision. Even if that doesn't answer all the questions for the future, it's still the best outcome. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Actually, the experience with the uh, with the Shrems 2 regarding US digital platforms is most of them continued to operate even if they knew that it was improper under the decision, simply because there wasn't any way to do anything different in the near term. 
so I, I agree with that. And um, I suspect, though, that that there, there may be um, ab uh, privacy advocates are around who are waiting to file some complaints yes. <laughs> in, <laughs> on that date, if, if that is the case. Yes, in, in any scenario, almost. I think that's going to be true. Perfect. Well, thank you all very, very much indeed. Um, to the person who asked a question about law enforcement data, I'm just going to put a link into the chat. Um, we held an event back in October, which looked at uh, UK and EU security cooperation. Uh, that was an event, uh, that was a topic that came up then. Uh, so do take a look at that. Um, while I'm plugging lots of IFG work, I'm also going to put a link into our data adequacy explainer, if you'd like to know a little bit more uh, about everything on that. And if you like data, we have lots of data work at the IFG. Um, so I'm just going to put a link to our Databytes event series in there so you can find lots of things that people are doing uh, that are interesting with government uh, data in the UK. Um, all that remains for me to say a little bit of uh, a few parish notices. First of all, um, coming soon to the IFG website, uh, we have a podcast recording on when Brexit and COVID collide. How will the government handle the end of Brexit transition alongside coronavirus? Uh, that sounds like an interesting one to tune into. And next week, uh, we have an event uh, amongst various events, one on global Britain and international research. What is the UK's science and health research role after Brexit? So if you enjoyed today, you may well uh, enjoy that one. All that remains for me to say is a huge thank you to Anthony, Jenny and Scott for a really brilliant discussion this morning. I, I certainly learned a lot and uh, we'll be following up lots of things that they were talking about. I, I'm sure that you will too. And thank you to all of you for joining us. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it and uh, hopefully see you again soon at an Institute for Government live event. Thank you very much. <laughs>